Good morning, everybody. Today, our scripture reading is from Matthew 8, 14 through 17. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Okay, what's going on? Everybody good? There we go. Illuminate. All right. Good to see you all. Um, real quick, um, I keep hearing from different people that, that like, I've been here for like eight months and like nobody's talked to me. First off, not cool guys. Talk to people. Look around you. I know everyone's got their phones like this. Just if you're too nervous to talk to someone, ask them what their like Instagram handle is and then like talk to them on Instagram. I don't know. (laughs) Reach out to each other, build some community. All right. Um, Otherwise, we'll have to do that thing that, like, the Baptist churches I grew up in going to. We're like, stand and shake the hand of the person behind you. I know why they did that now. Because when I was young, we were, I guess, the millennials who were ignoring everyone around us. All right, so do that. So there's that. Um, Today, here we are. It's not a long passage. um, But there's something interesting that Matthew does. And we're going to talk a bit about... Um, salvation. Surprisingly, we're actually going to talk about like, uh, like election, like predestination kind of stuff, right? Because it, it's obviously here. It's not. We'll get there. Um, I mean, it is. We'll get there. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about what salvation is and the response to it. And uh, maybe some, look at some stuff from some angles maybe you haven't. Um, but first, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to do a little bit of history because welcome to history class. Okay, let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you very much for, uh, for this place and for these people. And I ask that you would right now give us peace, give us presence of mind and presence of heart. Allow our hearts to be opened for what you have for us. Um, reveal to us some things that we haven't seen. Um, give us something uh, fresh and new. Um, let us look at things from different angles. Let us um, find exactly what you have for us individually this morning and collectively as a, as a community. Um, I ask that you would remove all the distractions of our week. We all have things that we're worried about or that we are struggling with. I ask right now that you would take those and put them aside so that when we pick them up later, we would maybe have a new perspective to look at them from. And uh, inspire us. Give us something um, to reach for and to move towards. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay. All right. Um, Verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Now, um, if you were here last week, I showed like an overhead picture of the town of Capernaum, Capernaum, um, the town where Jesus spent some time where Peter lived and two of the other disciples all lived as well. Um, Here's that uh, town from the side, and there's a spaceship hovering above some of the ruins. (laughs) That is a church, um, and uh, it's built directly over what we know to be Peter's house. Um, so I said last week, um, I'll show you the inside. Here's the inside of that church. It's pretty cool. Um, and there's a glass floor in the middle, and apparently they don't want people walking on it. Um, there's a glass floor in the middle. When you look down through that floor, you're looking down into, it's a bad picture, but you're looking down into Peter's house. The floor is missing. Um, it would have been a little raised, and it would have had... 
um, sort of a, a stone mosaic on the floor. Off, uh, they have actually some of that pulled aside so you can go look at it and see it. Um, and uh, so this is, this is the place where Peter's mother-in-law was sick when Jesus came with Peter into his house. Um, now, um, here's, okay, let me make this a little more tangible for you. So this is sort of a graph of what it looked like. I, I sort of cocked it sideways here because it's going to go with the next picture I'm going to show you. So ancient Roman houses were built around um, a courtyard, a center courtyard, and the roofs would have been sort of slanted, oftentimes shingled, um, to catch water and dump it usually into a pool at the center. The early house churches in places like Rome and Pompeii would gather around these, um, these sort of uh, courtyards with, with a, a pool in the middle, and they would practice church there. Um, but that is a little later. At this point, Jesus is just starting to gather his disciples. So let me overlay here sort of an artist rendition of what this would look like. So this room up here, there's a doorway, a stair going up above it. Um, that room right up, up between these two people is um, what the church is built over. It's sort of, it's Peter's house. He lived there. When we think of a house, we think of like a house. They think of a room, like one room. And people lived communally. Usually the more wealthier people lived on the bottom floor, especially in places like Rome. Maybe not in Capernaum, but in Roman cities. This is a Jewish city. But in Roman cities, wealthier people would live on the bottom and they would rent rooms out to poorer people on the top and they would all collectively be a household. Um, and so there's a courtyard in the middle. The courtyard would have like a stove and oven in the middle where all the people in the houses would come and they'd gather and cook food. And so some of the things that happened here in this space... Um, again, this is where Peter's mother-in-law was healed in that room. Um, it's where the sick were all brought right through the entrance into the courtyard and into that room where the sick were brought and they were probably likely laid out there in, in, that, in that room and Jesus was praying over them and healing them. And then we have um, Jesus spending the night there that night. We have in Mark 2, 2, Jesus heals and preaches and teaches again here in this room, likely some, some of it in the courtyard as well. Um, in Mark 2, you know the story of the paralytic that is lowered through the roof into the house? That is the place. Um, the shingles would have been taken off on the roof. And the people, so G, imagine Jesus in this room and people gathered all around. He's, he's probably sitting in there kneeling, sitting at his feet all around him. And there's likely people sitting all in the courtyard as well. And so these people can't get in to Jesus because they're all pressing in on him while he's teaching. And so they come and they go up likely up, on the, up the stairs here and some stairs in the back. They end up on the roof and they take the shingles off and they lower this man down in. And then the man is healed and he picks up his bed and he walks right out of this room into this courtyard and out into the streets. All right? Um, this is the place where the very first time all 12 disciples with Jesus came together, it was in that room. The first time they came together. This is like a holy place, all right? Um, Jesus' mother and brothers came to visit him when he was here. He's teaching his mother and brothers come walking in at one point, and they basically think he's crazy, and they're calling him to stop this ministry because it's going to get him killed. And they would have met him in the courtyard here, and he would have said, um, I'm going to do this work. You move on without me. So um, Jesus' private teachings on things like divorce and stuff would have all happened here in this place, in the book of Mark, um, the book of Luke, sorry. Um, this is an important place, an important room. Jesus spent a lot of time here. Jesus spent a lot of time in that room. Amazing things happened there. And we're going to talk about this room through history as we get going this morning. Um, so uh, Peter had a wife. Her, uh, we don't know her name. We don't even know um, his mother-in-law's name. But we do know he had a wife, and she's written about a lot in church history. And uh, we know they were both martyred together. They, uh, after 
Peter, um, after Jesus, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the gathering of the apostles in the upper room, um, they all launched out on this mission to plant churches, like in the book of Acts. You can read about that. And um, apparently his wife, Peter's wife, went with him, and she served alongside of him uh, doing the gospel work. And his mother-in-law would have stayed behind in the house. Now, the fact that his mother-in-law was living with Peter would have meant that her husband had died. There was this, um, this way of life in the early days where when you married somebody, your love didn't just extend to them, it extended to your in-laws. All right? Just, just putting that out there for you. Um, your love for your, your spouse would have been for also for your family, and you had a responsibility to take care of them as well. Now, um, we know, again, they were both martyred. We have writings from a man named Clement of Alexandria, not to be confused with Clement of Rome. I know some of you were thinking, it's no, it's not. Clement of Alexandria, he actually writes an account of how this happened, of what happened when they were both killed together. Now, they were killed, they were arrested by the Romans, and they were killed for basically preaching, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not Lord. Uh, we follow the teachings of Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the one true king and the one true Lord. This is... Um, this is uh, treasonous in the empire of Rome. To have another king and another lord, to live by someone else's teachings, to follow Jesus, to proclaim him as the son of God because Augustus was the, was the son of God. All right, so um, they were both arrested and they were both put to death. Um, Clement of Alexandria writes, on seeing his wife led to death, Peter rejoiced on account of her call and her conveyance home. And called very encouragingly and comfortingly. So as she's being led away to be beheaded, he is calling out to her and calling her by name, he says, and, and just telling her really encouraging things and saying his final words to her, telling her to be strong and to be brave, um, addressing her by name, remember, remember thou the Lord. This is going to be over soon. Remember Jesus. Jesus is Lord. They are not. No matter how powerful they think they are, we don't go along with them. We follow Christ. All right? And so they both died together. Peter, as tradition goes, they were going to crucify him. And he said, um, I do, I'm not worthy to die in the same way as the Messiah did. And they crucified him upside down instead. So um, here we are in this place, in this room where these great people lived. Small, weak, but great, great people. Um, Matthew 8, 15. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. Now, when you read this in the Greek, there is a flow. Um, verse 15, it, it's, it's different. It breaks from the, from the regular flow of, of the narrative, and it's written in a particular way to catch your eye. Um, he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. He purposely writes it a specific way. Um, and um, one of the things that you ask, again, the reminder, when you're reading these ancient texts, why was this important for the author, the writer of the book to keep? What was it that he wanted to convey, to leave behind? Because Matthew is an aging apostle. He's getting old. And so these aging apostles begin writing the accounts to leave behind for their churches because they want their churches to be discipled in a specific way. They want the nations to be discipled in a specific way. And so the writers, um, the apostles who wrote these things, um, they have specific messages for their people. We need to find those. 
And we need to realize that it's written for them. And then we need to say, now, if they applied that here, here's what happened. What if we took this idea? How do we apply that in our day to day? That's what we do when we gather together and we read these ancient words. That's what we're doing. Um, So we first off need to remember uh, Matthew is painting Jesus as a new Moses. Moses was sent to set people free. There's some things here that Matthew thinks the people need to be set free from. Um, Second, what did this mean for them? Third, um, what does it mean for our world today? So I'm going to leave this here. We're going to talk about something else and we're going to come back to this and you're going to see why it sort of falls under this umbrella of a bigger thing. There's a word I want you to repeat with me real fast. The word is soteria. Soteria. All right, there's another word. That's the Greek. There's another word. It's Hebrew. It's yisa. That's the Hebrew. Now I want you to say the word salvation. Salvation. That's the English. Now, uh, these are all the same word. Hebrew is for the Old Testament. The Greek is for the New Testament. Uh, The English is for us. Um, And um, these words all have, uh, they they all sort of mean the same thing. They're connected. It's it's, it's an idea. The word of, the idea of salvation is something you see all through scriptures from beginning to the very end. And it's always talked about. It's incredibly important. Except today, I fear that when we, when we are talking about salvation, oftentimes a lot of Christians are thinking about different things. There's different things going on in their mind when we talk about salvation. Um, Salvation, let's, so I want to build this from scratch. At the very beginning, salvation, the Hebrew idea, it simply meant to bring into a spacious environment, which is super weird, right? Like it meant it's sort of like you're trapped in a small space and oh, wow, I can spread out. I can move. I'm free. I can breathe. Um, it's, it's different. Like I can move around. I have freedom. There's no limits. Um, at the very beginning, this, this word, this is the idea that had behind it. Um, it, it, it carries with it lots of different ideas. Freedom from limits, uh, freedom uh, being delivered, freedom from chains, imprisonment, entrapment, slavery, troubles. That's why the Israelites would talk about salvation from Egypt. They would talk about um, salvation from their oppressors. They would talk about salvation when they entered into the promised land and they can move. They have, they're free. They have a place and a land. Um, and it was something they felt in their souls. And so it, it's sort of a metaphor. It's an idea. As we move into the New Testament, it carries a few more connotations. It starts being used as recovering something that was in the wrong hands, being found. Um, actually, Ernst Kaysamon points out that the, one of the ways that Paul uses the word salvation, he refers, to, um, uh, he refers to a slave being purchased and then set free. Um, and this is sort of, Paul has really, when Paul writes the book of Romans, he has three different atonement theories all in one book that he, that he pulls out and lays them all out there. He uses the word in different ways. The word salvation is used in lots of different ways. Um, it has to do with healing, being made whole again. It has to do with reconciliation to God. It has to do with two people in relationship who were separated, being brought back together, salvation. Um, it has to do with lots of things. It's a word that meant making something whole again making something as it should be, giving something peace and calmness and freedom, removing all the things that are confining it and constraining it. All right? That's the idea. Um, It is about the soul. It is about the body. It's about the heart, the mind. It's about relationships. It's about all of it. Salvation, when we talk about salvation here, when I talk about it, I'm not just talking about the idea of your soul, and that's all. Um, There is a... Okay, so hold on. I want to point out um, Jesus um, in the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
He only uses the word salvation one time. And when he does, he's talking to this guy, Zacchaeus. Um, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man. You know the song, if you grew up in Sunday school like I did. Some of you were just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, so he was apparently a wee little man. And uh, he, he uh, we're going we're to actually get into the story of Zacchaeus eventually. Um, but the idea is he had no honor. He was looked down upon by everyone. His whole house had no honor because he was a Jewish person living in a Jewish city who had sold himself out to Rome, was taking part in the oppression of his own people by charging taxes back to Rome and charging absorbent taxes, taking, stealing from his own people, oppressing his own people for financial gain. All right. So obviously everyone hated him. Nobody respected him. And he was separated from his people. When Jesus looks at him, he comes to his house. First off, Jesus has honor. He's a traveling, healing preacher, prophet from Nazareth. Everyone wants to hear what he has to say. He has high honor. He walks into the city. And instead of going to the house of the elders, he goes to the house of Zacchaeus, the lowest in the entire city, the man hated. And he takes him, he goes, I'm going to your house today. And he goes there, they're sitting down to eat. And he says, today, salvation, soteria has come to this house. And then he defines what this means. He says, because this man too is a son of Abraham. I am reconciling this man who betrayed his own people with his people. That is salvation in this moment. Okay? So salvation is not just one thing. It's lots of things. They're all encompassed. And the the hope of salvation is for all of you. We call it holistic salvation. Okay? Um, Now, what happens in Peter's house falls under the umbrella of salvation. There is... Um, a woman who is suffering and she's got this fever. First off, Jesus touches her, which in the first century, someone with a fever, you do not touch them. Um, you become unclean. Jesus is like, you think I care at this point? And he's touching people with fevers, all right? It's just what he does. Leprosy, yeah, come here. Um, and uh, so he's t- he touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up to wait on him. So again, this is written in a specific way that breaks sort of, it, it breaks from the regular flow of the text. Um, remember a few weeks ago, I talked about some of the literary devices that Matthew uses. One of them is called a chiasm. Chi is sort of the Greek word X, right? Um, it's also uh, the letter that represented the name of Christ. Uh, it's used all through scriptures to make points. One of them, the whole book of Matthew is apparently this chiasm that points to the kingdom of God. So on top of that, there's all kinds of little ones he puts everywhere that, that when you see them, In the Greek, you're supposed to stop and read them and ponder them. This is one here. So Jesus would be A, the woman would be B. Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her. And then Jesus got up and she she got up and began to wait on him. So it's he does something for her. She does something for him. uh, And so this is what makes it a chiasm. Just, all right. Um, It's a symbol of Christ. It's something for you to ponder and to stop to read It's something that Matthew specifically wrote differently so that his church would sit and ponder this. Not just that Jesus brings healing, but that there is a response to the healing that Jesus is bringing to this woman. And they would stop and they would ponder this and they would think about this. You see, unlike uh, the population, the modern population of of evangelical Western Christianity, um, the early church believed that they received salvation in order to bring salvation to others, that they were saved to save. They were served by God in order to serve, to respond. There was always a response. It was never 
just this idea that I'm receiving, 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 and my response is to go, yay, thank you, and to sing a bunch of praises. There was always this, we are conduit, things are passing through us, and what we have been given, we will give. Um, stuff, nothing ends with us, except for um, things like hate and retribution. When those come to us, we absorb them, and Jesus dying on the cross took our sins upon himself. He didn't push them through to other people, all right? We receive those, and then the love of God receive, and we, it passes through. Um, so this is the paramount picture of, of, of the story of God's people. There's this guy, Abraham, in the Old Testament. And Abraham um, is called out of his nation. And God says, I'm going to build a new nation. And this nation is going to be for other nations. So he is saved to save. Okay? Eventually, he ends up in bondage. Um, they make some mistakes, some decisions that were bad. And they end up in bondage. Um, and all of God's people are in bondage. And what happens? Moses comes and sets them free, leads them through the Red Sea, following a pillar, all this stuff. Um, and they come to Sinai, and God reinstates the covenant with them. He says, remember, I'm making a covenant with you. You will be a people whom I have saved to bring salvation to the world. The goodness I bestow upon you, you will be a nation for all nations. You will be my people. I will be your God. And eventually this will go to the Gentiles, and you will bring people. And, and there's all kinds of um, ways that they are supposed to display this in the world around them. Now, at some point, um, the church lost sight of all of this. Matthew was doing this to make sure the church remembered. Remember, you are saved to serve. You have been healed to bring healing. You've been reconciled so that you can reconcile. This is not just for your benefit. It is for the world. It passes through you, not to you. Uh, at some point, we kind of forget about this. And it, it really starts in the early church um, when Gnosticism sort of makes its way in. And the entirety of, of uh, it, it grows with the Catholic Church and it was carried into Pro Protestantism as well. There's this idea that all of life is just this ethereal thing that has to do with the afterlife to, to just fly away, to leave it all behind. And so um, there's really two things that... Um, that the church right off the bat got pretty um, kind of wrong, it got the focus on the wrong things, um, was it, it focused specifically on really two things and several lesser things. The two main things were that salvation was solely about the afterlife, that we got separated from the definition of salvation, that it is, it's holistic. It's about all of a person. Um, and that everyone, um, we started throwing around these doctrines like, like, um, and sort of misinterpreting them, the ideas of like predestination. And ever since I was a child, there's always been debates, predestination, free will, always back and forth. Even though the Bible talks about both of them, um, people want to say one exists and the other doesn't, and one exists and the other doesn't, and, throw, and, and fight about this. But really what we're fighting about is the afterlife, right? We're not actually fighting about anything here, tangible in the world. Um, and so this type of thinking, that it's only about the afterlife, and that from the beginning of time, uh, God has already predestined everyone to one of two final destinations, right? Um, that, that, that sort of thinking gradually led into other ideas. Um, things like, uh, it, it led people to the idea that salvation now is simply personal. It's just for me. And I'm in it to find my salvation. They're in it to find their salvation. Um, my kids will have to find their own. My, my wife find her own and everybody. And it's not communal. There's no community involved. Um, even though the prophets regularly wrote about people groups, bringing salvation to people. Like 
communities and nations. Um, and it, it just becomes down to just me. And the fact is, it, it's not even all of me. It's just the spiritual part of me, the soul. So really, a person's body doesn't matter. A person's suffering, their, their emotional state, their financial state, whether or not they're in poverty or not, none of that really matters. All that matters when you go into a place and there's people living in squalor and suffering from, um, by all accounts, um, diseases that could be easily eradicated and they're suffering from them. All that matters, though, is this one part of them that is their soul. And this becomes the focus of all of it. Um, and what happens is the church has, on many occasions, gotten just thrown out any, any interaction with making the world whole again. Oh, it doesn't matter. I've literally, I grew up hearing the phrase, you're polishing the brass on the, on the Titanic. It's a sinking ship. It's all going down. And, and all that matters is their souls. Um, the early Christians were vehemently against that. They didn't believe that at all. Salvation was a holistic thing. It was for all of a person. It wasn't just for one part of a person that's not tangible. It's, it's not just, just this ethereal thing. It's a wholeness thing. Um, now, I don't want you to get me wrong. I actually believe in predestination. I, I disagree on what the definition of it is. I fully believe in the idea of elect and predestination. Here's the thing. Um, predestination, election, these kinds of ideas that God has chosen people, um, I believe that is instrumental. I believe, in other words, you are, you are elected in the same way that we, we all know what election is. We do this every, every year, every few years, and it gets real noisy. Um, and we elect people just to be elected and, and say, I'm elected, right? No. We elect people so that they will do the things that we, we want them to do. I, I elect you to go... And to do this thing, to fix this thing. This is chose, I choose you to do this thing. How many of you have gone to a political rally or you've gone to a town hall or you've just yelled at your TV, that's not what I elected you to do, right? Regularly, this is a pastime in America, yelling at people, I didn't elect you to do that. That's not what I, what I chose. I chose you to do this thing. And you're doing the exact opposite thing, okay? And you've all felt this, this sort of upsetness about, okay, God does this all the time to his people, all the time. He does it through the scriptures. He did it through the prophets. The people are nation building. The, the people of Israel, they're nation building. And they're, they're, they're just becoming a nation and they're going to war and they're conquering these other nations. And then they're having these big parties and celebrations and, and, uh, and worship services and they're singing and clapping and playing songs. And the prophet comes walking in and says, Thus saith the Lord, I didn't elect you to do any of this. None of this was on the agenda when I elected my people. None of this. He says, I, Prophet Isaiah, I hate your show. I hate the whole thing. Um, and then you go, into the, you go into the temple and there's the, the priests there. With every action, with every sacrifice, you know what the priests are doing? They're reminding the people, here's what we have been elect to do. And they take the animal, and it's a gory picture, and they slit the throat, and the blood runs out. And then you know what they did? So you pour, the animal pours itself out, and they take the animal, and they lay it on the altar, and it is burnt, and this meat is cooked, and they take the meat, and they give it to the poor. You are fed. You're pouring yourself out. Like, this is what you are supposed to do, Israel. 
over and over and over again. There is the reminder, God speaking out to his people, I didn't elect you to do that. There are things that I elected you to do. Now, um, this woman, um, this salvation, this story, this is what Matthew wants his people to ponder. All right. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and she began to wait on him. This woman's response to her healing, to her salvation, was to serve. I was saved for something. Um, I was chosen to do this thing. God equipped me. Now I was sick and God healed me and equipped me with exactly what I need to do the thing that I need to do. Now we know from history, archaeology, all these, all these sciences, we know the kind of things that happened in this lady's house. After Peter and his wife left to follow Jesus and they went on this ministry, um, we know that this house became a, a house of healing. Um, a house church gathered there, the, the, the Christians, the believers in Capernaum, gathered in this house for centuries after this woman lived. And it's... It's not even later, like that night that she was healed. The text says that night people started pouring into her house to be healed. And you picture her at the stove, cooking the food, bringing it to the people, bringing them water. And the ministry kicks off right there in her home. Um, we actually have, we, we know that for several centuries there are um, believers in Capernaum used this room, this one large room, as a, as a place of common fellowship. They ended up taking the walls down and expanding it, and, and the later Christians turned it into that octagon shape that you see the church um, built in to like sort of say, yes, we're going to carry on the same tradition in this place. We, we have found in this space all kinds of pottery with writing on it. We found graffiti on the rocks that travelers and pilgrims have taken from around the world to this place. We found them in all kinds of, of, of languages from different time periods, Greek, Syriac, Aramaic, Arabic, um, people coming from everywhere and writing on these pieces of pottery, carving on the stones, things like Lord Jesus Christ, help thy servant, people who needed healing and wholeness. This is where they came to this woman's house. Um, Christ, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy. There's all these, all these different messages of people crying out for hope and for healing. Um, and it all has to do with this moment that this woman was saved to save. Jesus healed her so that this would turn into a house of healing. There was a purpose. It didn't just end with her. She became the conduit. Um, what this is, this is a model of discipleship for the nations. If we're discipling nations, they, they need to understand. You, Watermark, need to understand. Matthew's church needed to understand that your salvation isn't actually even for you. It is for the world. It is for the benefit of everyone else. You've been called, your eyes have been opened so that you can be a blessing for all nations around you. Matthew knew God's people had failed over and over. God gave them this mission, calls them out and says, you're gonna be for other people. And over and over and over again, they're failing and God keeps sending prophets and prophets and they kill the prophets every single time. And Matthew wants his church, don't forget, keep this at the center of it. Christ, all of it, right here. You are saved to serve. Be for the world what God is for you. Um, God has no physical body here in this world anymore. Jesus walked the earth in a physical body. Um, you know what it is now? It's us, the church, the body of Christ. We are the tangible, physical hands, the feet, the voice, the mouth of God. 
someone's getting a hug from Jesus, it's, it's the church hugging them. All right, that's, that's how this works. If someone's going to get a word from Jesus, it's going to come from the church. If, someone's gonna, if Jesus is going to hear the needs of the people, it's going to be our ears that are listening and taking this in. This is why we have been brought together. Paul absolutely believed this. He writes to the church in Ephesus, and he, he believed that each and every person um, whose eyes were open to who really is Lord in this world, their eyes were opened for a specific reason, for a specific job that they have to do. All right? Paul actually believed this. He writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says, we are God's handiwork. Um, the word he uses there is basically like the word that you would use for like an artist, somebody who is doing wood carving. Um, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do predestined to do specific things. God has things in mind for you to do. Now, um, one of my favorite podcasts is called Radio Lab, and it's, they, they, um, it's, through, uh, it's through NPR, and, and there's two hosts there um, that do this amazing storytelling. Um, two weeks ago, uh, when I was sort of getting ideas for this, they ran this story that was like, came down from the heavens, and it was like, here you go. Here's your illustration of all of this. And there's basically, there's this man. Let me show you a picture of him. He, he works for the New York City subway. His name was Wesley James Autry. Maybe you've heard his story. Maybe not. January 2nd, 2007, he, um, he's, he's waiting for a train in the subway with his two daughters, uh, four-year-old and six-year-old daughters. And he's there waiting for this train. And he looks to his right. It's a, it's a full uh, subway station. And there's a man who goes into a seizure and falls onto the tracks. And this man leaves his daughters, jumps right in to the tracks, grabs the man's hand, and it slips out. He grabs the man's hand again, and the man is seizing, and his hand slips out. And the train is coming 50, 40, 30, 20 feet. And at some point, he just bear hugs the guy, grabs his arms, and pins him down so his hands are not on the tracks, and lays on top of him as the train comes barreling over. And the train, he says, just the front car just grazed his calf and four cars go by and it stops underneath him. He says, I can hear my girls screaming on the deck who probably just assumed they lost their father. Um, I'm going to play the end of this. So he's going to talk and then there's two people interviewing him because there's something that connects here. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and play here. Uh, I yelled up from underneath the train, excuse me, I'm the father, we're okay. I just want to let my daughters know that, uh, that I'm okay because I know that they are worried about me. Everybody start clapping. Can I ask you a question? So it, it, the point at which you said you heard a voice yes. that said, I can do this. I can do this. What's, what, what is amazing to me is that it you was, left your daughters right here and I, dive after a guy you don't well, know. He was a stranger, total stranger, but you know what? The mission wasn't come completed. I was chose for that. You felt chose, like you, I you felt were chosen. Cho- I felt like I was the chosen one. Wow. But for a religious person, though, I would wonder, why me? Well, what you know what? Uh, maybe 20 years ago, I was supposed to be at a certain point. And then he explained to us exactly why he had jumped. He was the one guy who could. He said right before his feet left the platform, this one specific moment from his life flashed to mind. This thing that happened, you know, uh, I had a gun pulled to my temple, but, you know, it was a misfire, so, you know. A gun was put to your head and missed. So you were almost dead for a second I was almost dead, you know. So you think you might have been spared for a purpose? I was spared for a reason. 
After that moment, he says, when the gun went click and he didn't die, he always wondered, why had God spared him that moment? Until he was on the platform and he saw the guy fall off. He says then he knew. This is why. I can, I can do this. He was just, I can do this. I can do this. That voice, when that voice said that you're going to be okay, I knew everything was going to work out. All right, now, incredible, extreme example. Um, maybe this guy nailed it. Maybe he understand. Maybe he sees it correctly. They're like there was a, something that happened, and there was this thing. Paul would say that. Paul would say, "No, of course, of course, because because we are we are God's handiwork, created in Christ's image to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do." Paul would agree with this, with this guy's assessment of all of this. Maybe maybe you wouldn't. Um, maybe it's too extreme, but um, maybe it doesn't have to be extreme. Uh, maybe you had a roommate in, in college, like, like I did, who uh, was incredibly organized, and it was, it was, they were so organized that it was annoying. Um, and uh, they were always upset with, with you, me, you, because everything was a mess. And your whole life, organized people have been annoyed with you, me, because um, <laughs> you're not organized. And then one day, you see... You know, you see this person and they're sitting maybe at a cafe, coffee shop, whatever, and they're meeting with somebody who obviously is struggling financially, maybe a single mother, maybe a single father. Um, they've, got, they've got no time. They've got no resources, no ability to, they're, they're just making a mess of things. And they're like, oh, well, I was actually designed by God in a way that I can see things that maybe you can't. Let me walk you through this. And you come to realize that, like, they're not doing this for money. This is a ministry that they have because maybe they realized that the handiwork that God made them with, their ability to be organized, their ability to see things that other people can't, um, they've decided maybe not, maybe instead of using it for their own glory and their own um, enrichment of themselves, they understand the kingdom. And their gift becomes a gift for everyone else around them. Um, Or maybe there's that person who just is able to fix everything and you bring stuff to them that is just broken. You don't know what it is. And they they know what the problem is and they can fix it. Um, And maybe they're one of the best things that they do on the weekends is that they, they um, there's widows, old elderly widows in their neighborhood whose houses are falling apart and they're just fixing them up. They know exactly what to do. Um, or somebody who can explain things in a way that's, that nobody else can, or somebody who's really good at languages and teaching people different languages and different skills, whatever it is, there's a thing that, that you can do that you were given. Um, and one of, the, one, of the, one of the sort of places the early church used to sit and ponder is, is what power do I have? What ability do I have? What gifts? What, what honor have I been given? What privilege do I have that I have just kept to myself? Um, and how do I become conduit of this thing to pass through me to the world around me. Paul would look at you and say, I don't think you grasp how important this is that there are specific things in this world that you, you have been put here to accomplish. Things that God had set out and be like, you know who this would be perfect for? This person. That's that, and, and God's got you in mind. And Paul would look at you and say, of course. And the, the, thing, the thing that makes you 
um, so perfect for this job is this event you went through in your life or this suffering that you walked through or this time of loneliness or this time of alcoholism or this struggle, this place where you hit the bottom and you were able to climb out of it. Um, and the fact is that this story, um, had it ended there, it would have been tragic, but because it actually, that exists in your, the timeline of your story, it makes it beautiful and useful. And Paul would say, well, of course, that's what God does. He takes stories of terrible things and makes them beautiful. That's what the crucifixion is. It's the worst story we can possibly imagine. The worst suffering and humiliation, stripped naked, all honor removed, hung on a cross in public. And he says, no, this is, you don't understand. This is for the benefit of everyone. And even God realized, um, like, the power that I have isn't for me to hold. It's for everyone else. Um, the power that, that is possessed is not possessed just is not possessed by Jesus. It's given to everyone else. It's passed right through. Um, Matthew intends for the church to succeed where, where God's people have always failed. To realize that whatever you have been given is not for you. Your riches, your abilities, the brain power that, that you possess, maybe that others don't. Um, your ability to be happy in difficult times. All of these things are what make up the body of Christ and are necessary for the mission that God has watermarked out for. And not only has God given that to you to serve your community, he's given it to us, the church. He's given you to us. And it's not even just for us, it's for everyone around us. This thing just keeps flowing. Nothing you have been given is for you. It is for those around you. And the quicker we realize that, the more effective we will be at bringing in the kingdom to the world around us. Um, We're going to take communion. Why don't our communion servers go ahead and uh, take the elements and spread around the room? Um, So one of the big pictures in communion is is Christ in the common. It's just bread. It's just wine. uh, It's just tangible things. But in this moment, it's the body of Christ. It's the blood of Christ broken and spilled for other people. Um... This is an exercise. This is a ritual. The reason we do this every week is, is we are remembering it's a regular, ordinary thing, common thing, communion, common. It's, I'm coming to this and I'm seeing Christ in this. And the point of this is so that you will get good at it. You're practicing, you're, you're weightlifting, spiritual weightlifting, all right, so that you can go into the world and then in the common moments of your life, the common abilities that you have, the common ways that you have suffered and, and been poured out, you will see Christ doing his thing. And you will connect that to the gospel and you will be aware that God is working and God is building. Um, And so let's take a few moments. Let's ponder salvation, the ways, all the ways in which you have been given salvation and ponder your response to that. What was it? Was it for you? Or was it for us? Was it for them, everyone else? And so let's pray and take some time. We'll give you some time of, of peace and quiet. Speak to, Lord, speak to the Lord this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us. Make us whole. Thank you for all the ways that we have received salvation. Remind us that this is not some ethereal thing. We, we are being made whole so that we can make others whole. So with faith, let there be action. Um, and with our actions, may there be salvation and healing. Let us be your body in this world. In your name, amen. Take some time, talk to Jesus.
Oh uh-huh.